From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Shane Begum with you on this Monday, November 20th, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, the president of Uruguay's landed in Beijing for a state visit. China's foreign ministers met several, uh, with several other foreign ministers from Arab and Muslim countries to discuss the situation in Palestine. And voters in Argentina have elected a new president. In business, China-Europe freight trains are helping to boost trade. In sports, another record-breaking achievement for Novak Djokovic. In culture and entertainment, the new movie in the Hunger Games franchise tops the North American box office. Now checking the day's top stories. Uruguayan President Luis Alberto Lacaya Po has arrived in Beijing for a state visit. He's leading a delegation of ministers and business representatives and is expected to take part in a series of events related to trade and business. Cao Bing has more. Fresh in Beijing, the Uruguayan President Luis Lacaya Po begins his state visit to China at the invitation of Chinese President Xi Jinping. This marks his first visit to China during his term in office. And the president is leading a large delegation. And according to Uruguayan official, the delegation includes key ministers and business representatives. Chinese Assistant Minister of Foreign Affairs Hua Chunying has warmly welcomed the delegation, joined by the Guard of Honor. Uruguayan officials say the president's week-long schedule lasts from Monday to Friday and involves meetings with top Chinese officials. He will take part in promotional events showcasing goods, services and Uruguay's trademarks. President Lacalipo is also slated to deliver a master lecture at Tsinghua University. And on Wednesday, the Uruguayan leader will attend a seminar on investment opportunities before meeting President Xi Jinping. The official website for the Uruguayan president highlights the visit's objectives. The message emphasizes the intent to strengthen economic and diplomatic relations with China, their main trading partner. 
Coinciding with the 35th anniversary of diplomatic ties, the visit follows earlier successful trips by Uruguayan officials to China this year, um, including foreign, industry, agriculture and fishery ministers. Both sides say the outcomes have been fruitful, fostering optimism for future bilateral trade cooperation and a deeper strategic partnership. That was Cao Bing reporting. And for more, here's Zheng Chuning with an overview of bilateral ties between China and Uruguay over the years. Bilateral relations between China and Uruguay have sustained healthy development since the establishment of the ties in 1988. That's according to Wang Xiaoyuan, the former Chinese ambassador to Uruguay. He cited continuous growth in trade and increased all-level exchanges. In 2022, bilateral trade reached 7.44 billion U.S. dollars. That's more than 60 times as much as in 1988. China has become Uruguay's largest trading partner and the bilateral political relations have also been stable. Looking ahead, with Uruguay being an important agricultural exporter, experts says it has drawn trade complementarity with China and there is great cooperation potential to be further tapped in this sector. China has a nihilistic long-term demand for these products. China's increased imports will bring material support to the Uruguayan economy. Simultaneously, Chinese people will also benefit from these green agriculture products from Uruguay. Renewable energy is another key area where the two countries have engaged. As one of the first Latin American countries to join the Belt and Road Initiative, China and Uruguay cooperated under this framework to promote green development. Besides trade and economic cooperation, experts also highlighted the potential in cultural and people-to-people -people exchanges. They expressed optimism about the future of China-Uruguay relations, adding that the president's visit to China this time will hopefully bring the partnership even closer, which is in line with the interests of both people. That was Zheng Chuning reporting. Officials in Beijing and Washington say at last week's meeting in San Francisco between Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden has helped to ease tensions between the world's two largest economies. It's also led to a number of agreements that are expected to shape bilateral ties in the future. Owen Faircloth explains. Chinese leader Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden left their meeting in California last week, having done much to repair what's arguably the world's most critical bilateral relationship. One of the most important outcomes of that meeting was their respective military commands agreeing to restore direct communication by telephone if need be, in order to try and dial down tensions as two military superpowers race to develop the world's most advanced weaponry, often based on artificial intelligence. And there are other concrete developments, for example, the streamlining of visa applications to facilitate travel between these two countries, as well as more flights expected to begin early next year. China is also expecting to invite 50,000 U.S. students on study programs over the next five years. China and the U.S. are also agreeing to cooperate more on green energy initiatives to meet ambitious emissions reductions targets. That's a positive development ahead of the latest U.N. climate change conference starting at the end of this month. 
But the elephant in the room at that meeting last week remains semiconductors and computer chips, as well as other areas of technology. The US and China both want to become world leaders in the development of microchips and semiconductors needed to power the most sophisticated gadgets. Biden has taken measures to stop China getting its hands on the most advanced semiconductors and computer chips, leading to complaints from China that it's trying to stifle a legitimate competitor. There's also the thorny issue of tariffs hanging over from Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump. Many of them left in place and now under review by US officials over whether to extend them or keep them in place. There's no date set for that yet, but it's likely to be an early test of just how far this China-US relationship really has been repaired. That was Owen Faircloth reporting. Well, the countryside around Huangshan, Anhui province, has been abuzz with excitement as the first edition of the Rural Theatre Festival is underway. The festival features a wide range of performances, including the traditional Hui Opera, Peking Opera, and Huangmei Opera. Zheng Tao visited a local village and has more details on these traditional art performances. Throughout Xianlian village, visitors can enjoy colorful costumes, intricate makeup, and melodious music. Backstage, I caught up with 14-year-old Xu Yijie before her performance. She's also the youngest actor at the festival. I began learning Hui Opera in 2018. It takes around five years of training before you can perform on stage. Growing up around her grandparents, who are all fans of Hui Opera, she developed a keen interest in the centuries-old art form from a young age. The young actress performed a classic piece called Hu Jiazhuang on stage. It's a solo fight scene derived from the classic Chinese novel The Water Margin, which has captivated audiences for generations. The performance demands high standards from the performer. In the 10-minute show, she not only has to execute a series of intricate movements, including spinning and jumping in elaborate costumes, but also needs to synchronize with the rhythm of the music. Many local villagers welcomed the theater festival. Our villagers enjoy doing things like singing, dancing, and listening to traditional opera. It's the life of the countryside. I've never seen a theater show this good here before. I really hope I can catch it again next time. When I was a kid, they used to have theater performances in the villages. It feels like I've gone back to my childhood. In recent years, the Huangshan government has shown a strong commitment to promoting Hui Opera. In 2018, they teamed up with the Anhui Professional College of Art to launch a five-year college enrollment plan aimed at recruiting and training students from across the province. Xu Yijie is one of the students who benefited from this project. Zhang Mengxin with Huangshan Municipal Publicity Department says they have also set up Huangshan Hui Theatre to further promote traditional culture. Xu Yijie is among the first group of young actors selected for the Huangshan Hui Theatre. All of them are under 20 years old. This initiative is under a government project, and the theater festival provides a platform for these young actors to show their talent. Meanwhile, the festival also provides a stage for a group of theater lovers like Wang Jingling. I've developed a deep interest in Huangmei opera since I was a child. 
Five or six years ago, I began learning the opera using my phone. I'm really grateful that Rural Theatre Festival has given me a platform to show my talent. Another fascinating outcome is the influx of tourists drawn to these events. Beyond public recognition, young actress Xu Yijie stresses the vital role of young actors in promoting traditional culture. Very few people are familiar with Hui Opera, and there are limited opportunities and platforms for learning this art form. My goal is to spread awareness about Hui Opera through performances and create a channel for people to explore and learn more about it. The first edition of the Rural Theatre Festival in Huangshan has already held seven performances in surrounding villages, and is expected to wrap up in December. For the Beijing Hour, this is Jiang Tao. Coming up, China's foreign minister has met with several of his counterparts from Arab and Muslim nations. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in. Eleven minutes past the hour, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi's met with the delegation of Arab and Islamic foreign ministers in Beijing. The delegation's in China till Tuesday to discuss ways to de-escalate the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Wang said the international community must act urgently and take practical and effective measures to prevent this tragedy from spreading. He said China has been working hard to de-escalate the conflict, protect the safety of civilians, expand humanitarian assistance, and prevent a humanitarian disaster. He said China is ready to work with Arab and Islamic countries to end the fighting in Gaza as soon as possible to alleviate the humanitarian crisis and to promote an early and lasting settlement of the Palestinian question. The Arab and Islamic foreign Ministers have called for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza as their delegation visited Beijing on the first leg of a tour to push for an end of the hostilities and to allow humanitarian aid into the Palestinian enclave. Israel's hopeful that Hamas could free a large number of hostages in the coming days. Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Herzog, made the remarks on ABC News on Sunday. Hamas took around 240 hostages during its deadly surprise assault on southern Israel on October the 7th. Meantime, the Qatari prime minister has said the main sticking points hindering a deal to release the hostages are now very minor. Uh, Qatar has uh, been a key intermediary negotiating the hostages' release. On the ground, the Israeli military continues its offensive on Hamas targets in the Gaza Strip from land, sea, and air. And it's pushing its operation into the southern part of the Strip. The army also reports rocket attacks from Gaza on Israeli towns, and air defense sirens sounded in the north and the south. It's also reported that Israeli troops clashed with Palestinians in the West Bank on Sunday. Al-Shifa Hospital is still a focus of the conflict. A Gazan official said Israeli soldiers were forcing people to evacuate from the hospital where Israel says Hamas is maintaining a command post. So far, over 14,000 people have died on both sides. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has called the civilian casualties staggering and unacceptable while urging a humanitarian ceasefire. Sam Mednick has details in Jerusalem. Over the weekend, a United Nations delegation visited the Al-Shifa hospital. They described the place as a place of death. They said that there was a lack of fuel, a lack of medicine and clean water. To get into the hospital, they had to walk over a mass grave where 80 bodies were buried. 
This hospital has been at the epicenter of fighting in the city of Gaza, and that is because Israel said Hamas uses it as a command and control center. Hamas has negated those allegations. On Sunday, about 2,600 people evacuated the hospital, but nearly 300 severely injured people remained behind. Among those who did evacuate were about 31 critically ill babies. They were taken to a hospital in the south of Gaza and are expected to be taken into Egypt. Now, the fate of these babies was unclear. For a week, there has been no fuel in the hospital, meaning that their incubators have had no electricity. It was unclear if they were going to be able to survive. Now, Israel is continuing its offensive in its raid into the Al-Shifa hospital. And on Sunday, it said that it found a 50-meter tunnel system about 10 meters deep underneath the hospital, where they said they found a staircase as well as bulletproof doors and a firing hole where snipers could shoot through. They also said that they, they released what they said were images of Hamas bringing hostages into the hospital after the October 7th attack where Hamas attacked Israel. One of the videos shows what they said was one of the hostages being led by gunmen around the corner of the hospital and into a room. Israel has said that it is expanding its operation south but it had also told lots of people, all of the people in the north, to move to the south. And now it's unclear where hundreds of thousands of people are supposed to shelter as it continues its offensive. Aid groups are struggling to get enough assistance in to help everyone. Many people who lost their homes are living in tents on the muddy ground. The weather is getting colder. They say they're getting sick and they're concerned that it's only going to get worse as the winter comes and as the fighting continues. That was Sam Bendick reporting. And for more on the Israel-Palestine conflict, Joe Yashin went to Jenin in the West Bank. I'm now in Jenin, the very flashpoint of the occupied West Bank. Now, Israel airstrikes have become more regular here these days. Uh, tensions are high as the war on Gaza rages. In the latest raid, um, the Israeli drone attack on this uh, very densely populated refugee camp killed at least three. Al Jazeera reported that at least 80 Israeli military vehicles on Thursday night stormed into the city, raiding homes, detaining several people, using bulldozers to damage cars and the roads. Harif said they struck an underground facility situated below the Al-Asari Mosque, claiming that it served as a command center for a militant cell that was planning to carry out attacks against Israel. Mr. Harney, living next to the mosque, told us the story. It surprised me. I was with my family at home when the Israeli army attacked the mosque with rockets. These rockets destroyed roofs. It was a huge explosion without warning. It was a barbaric attack, an unhuman attack. The Palestinian Islamic Jihad declared the extension of the October 7th Al-Aqsa flood operation to Jenin and said it attacked several Israeli settlements nearby. And their Jenin battalion claimed it used a number of high explosives to target Israeli vehicles inside the camp. Hamas really also claimed responsibility for several attacks against Israelis in the region. And that has fueled the ongoing cycle of violence in the West Bank where at least 200 Palestinians have been killed in Israeli raids since the war. Given the current tensions here, we are advised not to stay long in this era where uh, you know, small arms and high explosives have increased in the recent weeks. Uh, because of the mounting anger of the death toll in Gaza and of course the decades-long occupation uh, of the West Bank.
That was Joe Yashin reporting from the West Bank. Well, meantime, Yemen's Houthi rebels say they've seized an Israeli cargo ship in the southern Red Sea. A Houthi military spokesperson warned countries whose citizens work in the Red Sea to stop any activity with Israeli ships. Israel's called the hijacking a very grave incident of global consequence. It adds the vessel was on its way from Turkey to India. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office says a Japanese company operated the ship on lease from a British firm. Uh, the Prime Minister's office also claims Iran was behind the incident and Tehran's yet to respond to that accusation. Coming up, voters in Argentina have de- uh, elected a new president. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. At 19 minutes past the hour. Argentina's president-elect has vowed to end the country's decades of economic decline and to return Argentina to its former glory after decades of stagnation. Uh, Javier Malay uh, won the election after his rival, Economy Minister Sergio Massa, conceded. Malay will be the country's uh, president for the next four years. Joel Richards has more. Millet was elected as the, uh, as the president-elect. He's been confirmed to have taken 56% of the vote. It's nothing short of a landslide victory for the far-right libertarian candidates. The largest majority that anyone has won a elect- presidential election in Argentina since the return to democracy 40 years ago. So it's a huge victory for Millet, who was the outsider in these elections. Just three years ago, he was a TV panelist. Now, He is president-elect for Argentina. He inherits a country in deep economic crisis, Argentina facing its worst crisis in two decades with high levels of poverty, inflation in triple digits. And Millet has won the vote, won these elections on the back of promises to transform the economy with bold and radical ideas such as uh, slashing the, the peso, and uh, and adopting the US dollar as the currency, but also abolishing the central bank, privatizing education and health, a whole host of policies that remains to be seen if he will be able to implement him, because the real challenge now begins for Javier Millet. If he is able to implement these promises that he said that he says will tackle Argentina's economic uh, difficulties and its situation, but it's an inexperienced political party. They're in a coalition with the former president, Mauricio Macri, certainly faces large challenges. And again, the question is whether he implements these radical reforms or if he moderates his policy. That was Joel Richards on the presidential runoff in Argentina. Japan's wrapping up its third release of nuclear-contaminated water from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. The facility dumped around 7,800 tons of treated radioactive water into the sea in each of the first two releases. The latest round reportedly comes to a close sometime on Monday. Chris Gilbert has more. Well, it's been 17 days of, you know, a third discharge. The first two had about 7,800 tonnes of water released into the ocean. This third one is to uh, is expected to be much the same. So that brings us, uh, for those who are keeping score, to about 23,500 tonnes of water discharged. However, doesn't even scratch the surface of the surface of, of what is planned. Uh, that's less than 2% of the total accumulated wastewater the government intends to discharge. There's still 1.26 million tonnes 
left to be dribbled out into the Pacific Ocean over the coming decades. And this project continues to face criticism since it was uh, you know, launched in uh, late uh, August. The IAEA, the UN Atomic Watchdog, and the Japanese government, along with uh, third-party countries, including uh, China, have been testing the water. They say that levels of tritium, a radionuclide that remains, remains very low and safe uh, levels of tritium remain in the water. However, there are uh, ongoing doubts. Experts say that TIPCO, the energy company, and the government have very poor credibility with the public, very poor transparency about what other radionuclides are not being disclosed. And there's another problem, which is 16 square kilometers surrounding the Daiichi nuclear site uh, is a growing uh, amount of nuclear waste, soil, organic waste uh, that is being piled up in bags. Uh, the government has until 2045 to permanently dispose of it and no plan yet of how it is going to do so. That was Chris Gilbert reporting. Now, as Japan continues to discharge nuclear contaminated water into the ocean, it seems to have yet another problem to deal with. Millions of tons of contaminated soil are accumulating at a storage facility surrounding the nuclear site as efforts are underway to make the region fit for habitation once again. And once again, here's Chris Gilbert. Bagged radioactive soil covers the 16 square kilometer restricted area around the wrecked Daiichi nuclear power plant in Fukushima. It's been accumulating since the 2011 tsunami and meltdown at a rate of up to 4 million cubic tons a year. The government has until 2045 to permanently dispose of it. Officials say they intend to recycle it. Basically used as a basis of the construction, such as the farmland or roads or the embankment. So with the cover of the non-contaminated soil, to ensure that uh, radio uh, those to the workers, the people, to the level which are allowed to based on the international uh, safety standards. The storage facility is located in what used to be Okuma Town. About 2,700 people used to live here, but since the meltdown, no one stayed behind. Other towns near the plant remain vastly underpopulated, even as former evacuation zones slowly open up again. About 20,000 people remain permanent evacuees from Fukushima. Many of them have started new lives in cities like Tokyo. But the government is trying to bring them back by creating new jobs in underpopulated towns. But experts say the government is not being realistic about the challenges facing local communities. Analysts emphasize there is no plan yet to dispose of the waste in the area, which they say is symptomatic of a nuclear disaster which is still playing out and keeping people away. That was Chris Gilbert reporting from Fukushima, Japan. A report suggests climate change is increasingly detrimental to human health. Tsinghua University's Zheng Zhihui uh, is a contributor to the 2023 China report of uh, the Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change. She highlights a number of health indicators in China linked to climate change. In 2022, China experienced an unprecedented 21 days of heatwave exposure, resulting in 50,000 deaths, double the figure of 2021. The extreme heat reduced outdoor activity by 2.3 hours per person per day. By 2050, an estimated 24 million people in China could be at risk due to sea level rise. Well, Zhang says China's taking proactive steps for green development and mitigating climate change's health impacts. 
2022, 28 provinces in China integrated climate data with health monitoring, enabling prompt responses to extreme weather. Efforts to expand urban green spaces and improve air quality have prevented 38,000 deaths from 2012 to 2022. China is steadily transitioning to a low-carbon energy structure. Experts warn that current climate adaptation mitigation measures are lagging behind the urgent need for action. Fears of a major volcanic eruption in Iceland are growing. A pressure has been building under a small fishing village with a large crack appearing in the ground. Authorities have evacuated residents nearby and are working to install lava defenses. And all of this has brought back memories of a catastrophic eruption from 13 years ago. Johannes Pleschberger takes a look. Billion dollars of financial damage, eight days of interrupted air traffic in Europe. Iceland's Eyjafjallajökull Jökull outbreak in 2010 had a severe impact on the world. But according to Iceland's Met Office, the current volcanic activity is different. So this is a different kind of volcano, you may say. So the uh, Eyjafjallajökull eruption, we had a very explosive eruption. And so it, we had a volcano, stratovolcano, covered by glaciers. So here we are looking at a different kind of volcano. Unlike that explosive outbreak in 2010, the current expected lava flow is likely to happen along a 15-kilometer crack, which opened up in the village of Grindavik. Magma is filling into this tunnel and recently rose to about 500 meters below the surface. So while there's an inflow in, of magma into this crack, the, the, it's quite likely that the lava will reach the surface and we will have an eruption. Uh, but if the lava flow will stop, uh, it can stagnate inside this crack and there will not be an eruption. Although this volcanic activity is expected to only have a localized impact, for Iceland itself, the consequences are serious. Almost 4,000 people needed to be evacuated from Grindavik. That's around 1% of the country's small population. And they might face a very long wait to return. Authorities are currently building earth walls to contain potential lava flows, although it is difficult to predict where along the crack an outbreak might occur. Meanwhile, the Met Office is in close contact with Iceland's only international airport, located 20 kilometers from the volcano. But for now, the authorities don't expect any consequences for air traffic, even if an eruption occurs. That was Johannes Pleschberger reporting. Checking the weather before the break in Beijing's at plus one overnight. It'll be cloudy with a high of 13 on Tuesday. Chongqing's 11 this evening, then a slight rainfall in 19. Lasses minus one overnight, followed by sunny skies in 13. Hong Kong's 20, then sunny with a high of 26. Elsewhere, Tokyo is five degrees overnight. It'll be cloudy with a high of 17 on Tuesday. Islamabad's down to 11. Sunny and 25 tomorrow. Bangkok's at 22 this evening, then it's uh, overcast and 32 on Tuesday. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, the president of Uruguay has landed in Beijing for a state visit. China's foreign minister has met uh, several, uh, with several foreign ministers from Arab and Muslim countries to discuss the situation in Palestine. And voters in Argentina have elected a new president. Shane Bigham with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music Talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. 
we all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. An German railway company Deutsche director of the International Monetary Foundation. Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你. This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you're a rookie, or a sophisticated learner, there is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world, this is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host, Shane Bigum with you on this Monday, still to come. In business, China-Europe freight trains are helping to boost trade. In sports, another record-breaking achievement for Novak Djokovic. In culture and entertainment, uh, the new movie in the Hunger Games franchise has topped the North American box office. To contact us, you can email radio at cgtn.com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at CGTN Radio. But first of all, checking the day's headline news, here's Wang Zihang. Thank you very much, Shane. Uruguayan President Luis Lacalle Pou has arrived in Beijing for a state visit. Lacalle Pou will stay in China from Monday to Friday. He is leading a delegation of ministers and business representatives and is expected to take part in a series of events related to trade and business. Foreign ministers from several Arab and Islamic nations have called for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. This comes as their delegation is visiting Beijing to push for an end to hostilities and to allow humanitarian aid into the enclave. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has met with the delegation that includes officials from Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Indonesia, Palestine and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Spokesperson Mao Ning of the Chinese Foreign Ministry says China is staying committed to ending the conflict. Since the outbreak of the Israel-Palestine conflict, China has been consistent with its stance, echoing calls by Arabian and Islamic nations in firmly supporting a ceasefire, protecting civilians, offering humanitarian assistance, and supporting two-state solution. China recognizes the just voices in recent Islamic-Arabic summit and supports Arabic and Islamic nations to actively engage in diplomacy and play bigger roles. The visiting delegation's agenda also includes communication and coordination on protecting civilians and the just settlement of the Palestinian question. Heavy rainfall in the Dominican Republic has killed over 20 people, including three children. Torrential storms have caused flooding, damaged infrastructure and brought down houses in the Caribbean nation. Authorities have evacuated over 13,000 people. A majority of the country's 32 provinces are under alert. President Luis Abinada has called it the largest rainfall ever in the country's history. Tens of thousands of people have taken to the streets of Madrid against a decree granting amnesty for hundreds of Catalan separatists. Authorities estimate 170,000 stormed the streets, shutting down a major motorway. 
This government can't last. The separatists have their boot on his neck and he can't do anything about it. We are at the mercy of people who hate Spain. We have to keep taking the fight to the streets. We need to protest at our workplace. We should call for a general strike. We must do everything we can. Now is the time to act. The protests come after Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez won a vote in Congress by slim majority, ending almost four months of political deadlock. The political maneuver required winning the support of Catalan separatists by granting the amnesty. The United Nations High Commission for Refugees says over 500 Rohingya refugees originally from Myanmar have landed on the shores of Indonesia's Aceh province, the fourth wave of arrivals in the last week. The commission said the refugees who arrived at various parts of the province have overwhelmed local facilities. One official says the commission is striving to ensure the basic needs of these refugees. We ensure the refugees are getting their basic needs, since they have been at sea for many days, more than two weeks probably. And ensure their medical needs, because they've been at sea and some may have been sick. Also, we ensure the security around this area. The migration, which has lasted for several years, has seen Rohingyas escaping from Myanmar to Muslim-majority Bangladesh, or by rickety wooden boats to Malaysia and Indonesia, as well as Thailand. The United Nations negotiation on the world's first treaty on plastic pollution has drawn more than 500 proposals from those involved. Delegates have been meeting in Nairobi, Kenya. Ecotoxicologist Bethan Almuth at the University of Gothenburg says plastics cause serious damage to the earth. What our research shows is that plastics are affecting the planet in a way that they're destabilizing the function of this planet that we live on in a way that makes it less safe for us and it makes it less predictable and it makes it more dangerous for us to live here on, and, and less, less sustainable for us to live on the planet. So that work is showing that plastics are connected to climate change, to biodiversity loss and to other major threats and crises that we as a human population are facing on the planet. The industry is estimated to produce 400 million tons of waste every year. Negotiators have until the end of next year to strike a deal for the control of plastics. Rosalind Carter, wife of former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, has died at her home in Plains, Georgia at the age of 96. The Carter Center, which is a non-governmental organization founded by the couple, announced her death on Sunday. U.S. media reports say Rosalind Carter's most lasting individual legacy will be her efforts to diminish the stigma attached to people with mental illnesses and her fight for parity and access to mental health treatment. All right, thank you very much. That was Wang Zihang with Headline News. And this is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, China-Europe freight trains are helping to boost trade. wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China-Africa Talk. Find us on your favorite podcast. We'll see you there. 37 minutes past the hour now. Turning to business, and here's Tianyu. Thank you, Shane. Stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished higher on Monday. Timothy Pope has more. 
The uh, Shanghai Composite and Shenzhen component each advanced a little less than half of 1%. The rates move uh, saw major banking stocks advancing pretty cautiously. Uh, ICBC, China's biggest lender, rose about six-tenths of 1%, while China Merchants Bank was up eight-tenths of 1% as uh, rate cuts would impact their bottom lines. Uh, oil stocks also gained after uh, media reports that OPEC Plus is considering making some further cuts to supplies in order to keep prices up. Crude prices extended their run of gains today and PetroChina added almost 1%. Sinopec was up as well. There was also uh, just a general boost to sentiment today from investor perceptions of uh, tensions easing following the meeting between uh, the Chinese and US presidents last week. That may have helped turn the tide in uh, foreign investment into the Chinese stock markets. There was a net inflow of funds via the Stock Connect links after several weeks of, uh, of net outflows. That was Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index was up over 1.8%. In Japan, the Nikkei lost nearly 0.6%. China's one-year loan prime rate, a market-based benchmark lending rate, came in at 3.45%, unchanged from the previous month. The overall five-year LPR, on which many lenders base their mortgage rates, also remained unchanged from the previous reading of 4.2%. The just-concluded Silk Road International Expo in Xi'an has brought together a diverse range of exhibitors from about 30 countries. Yang Jinghao spoke with several exhibitors about their products and how China-Europe freight trade train services are further boosting trade. The Silk Road International Expo in Xi'an this year has brought together a diverse range of exhibitors from about 30 countries. We have these cookies from Belarus, um, cream cheese, and caviar. The exhibitor's company specializes in imports and exports between China and Belarus. She says around 80% of their products are transported by the rail system. Here at the Xi'an International Port, the Chang'an China Europe freight train set out for the very first time in November 2013. Over the past decade, the service has completed over 20,000 trips and the transport route has grown from 1 to 17. The routes cover nearly the entire Eurasian region, with transport efficiency continuously improving. When the service was just launched, the products were mainly equipment such as brake-making machines and petroleum machinery. Now the categories has expanded to new energy vehicles, solar photovoltaic panels and consumer electronics. This year also marks the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. Participating countries say they recognize the important developmental role this modern silk road has played. Currently, more than 80% of the container railway routes from China to Europe pass through Belarus. We're also taking this opportunity to send trains to Chinese cities such as Xi'an, Chengdu and Chongqing. Over the past 10 years, our trade turnover has been steadily growing, which contributes to the development of our bilateral ties. During the expo, Chinese and overseas operators have also discussed strategies to promote the high-quality development of the freight service over the next decade. A series of business forums and meetings have explored investment opportunities during the five-day event. That was Yang Jinghao reporting. 
more than 11,000 vehicles are on display at the ongoing 21st Guangzhou International Automobile Exhibition, commonly known as the Guangzhou Auto Show. The vehicles include global debuts, concept cars, and NEVs. Going global has become a buzzword for many Chinese exhibitors at the event. Fresh data shows China exported nearly 4 million vehicles in the first 10 months of the year, up 60%, poised to become the world's largest exporter. In the third quarter, 65% of the NEVs sold worldwide came from China. Auto industry exports grew from less than 1.6 billion U.S. dollars in 2001 to more than 121 billion dollars in the first eight months of this year, with its market share climbing up from less than 0.7% to 5.5%. Industry leaders say Chinese electric vehicle manufacturers have unique advantages from cost control to technological innovation when they steer towards the huge U.S. market. According to insiders, the U.S. does not have enough raw materials and components to meet their potentially rapid-growing demand for green cars. Rich Schmidt is Tesla's former director of manufacturing operations. We have a lot of、uh, battery technology, semiconductor technologies, and a lot of the other、uh, raw material、uh, supply chain coming from China. China leads in some of those technologies, and I think、uh, th- that technology will eventually transfer into the United States as well. So I think there's really good opportunity globally for any country to、uh, be productive in North America. China dominates the mining and processing of key min- minor, min- min- minerals such as graphite, which is widely used in EV batteries. The country is also a major producer of two key components of EV batteries: the anode and the cathode. China is actively working to support the development of more affordable rental housing projects across the country. As part of this initiative, there has been an increased focus on introducing additional financial instruments like real estate investment trusts or REITs to facilitate the financing of affordable rental housing. Yang Junyi shares insights and analysis from industry insiders and experts. The idea of REITs is not new. The real estate market has been talking about them for decades. The term stands for real estate investment trust, and they are put together by brokers to channel funds into specific property projects, with yields coming from the income generated by the real estate project. In 2022, China's first four affordable rental housing REITs were listed and traded on the Asia market. And in the first three quarters of the year, all the rental housing projects under the four REITs reported steady performance, with the REITs' earnings exceeding two trillion yuan, in line with their own expectations. Housing experts say the introduction of the REITs marked an important milestone for China's rental housing market. I think it provides a good exit and financing channel for the, all, all the investors and operators. While we we know that rental housing,、uh, in terms of asset type and the operating model, it has a long、uh, return period. So REITs provides a good exit channel for that. Secondly, uh, the REITs uh, initiative does require a lot of criteria on the asset management performance in terms of stabilizing、uh, rental performance and occupancy rate. So that will help. To drive the sustainable development and the growth of the market, and there are more on the way. Shanghai-based Chentou's affordable rental housing REITs, with Guo Taijunan as its manager, is now under review by the Shanghai Stock Exchange. China Construction Bank also stated that the National Development and Reform Commission is assessing its own REIT application. 
Industry insiders say it's the huge market potential that promotes the introduction of REITs for affordable rental housing. People in China in the next five to ten years, the movement will be much more frequently compared to five to ten years ago. So I think the rental market actually now、um, provides some opportunity. To, some demand is there. The macro policy is more leaning towards to the property market. And compared to the traditional property investment, the REITs provides the higher liquidity for the investor、um, to invest. So I think that's one of the major advantage for the investor jumping to REITs. According to the Ministry of Housing and Urban Rural Development, China plans to add 6.5 million government-subsidized rental houses in 40 key cities to help an estimated 13 million people in need of affordable housing during the 14th five-year plan period, which ends in 2025. That was Ying Jingyi reporting. And finally, customs data shows that Shanghai's imports and exports surpassed 3.5 trillion yuan, or about 488 billion U.S. dollars, in the first 10 months of the year, up 1.9 percent. The city's trade with the European Union amounted to 711 billion yuan, up 5.3 percent, accounting for over 20 percent of the total. Its export of mechanical and electrical products accounted for over 69 percent of the total export value, up 4.4 percent. The import of consumer goods amounted to 23 percent of the total import value, up 9.6 percent.、Right, thank you very much. That was Tianyu with business. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, another record-breaking achievement for Novak Djokovic. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related: the hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. Forty-seven minutes past the hour. Turning to sports, and here's Yang Guang. Thank you, Shane. In tennis, Novak Djokovic has added another record to his sizable career collection as he won the seventh ATP Finals title, the most by any player in history. The top seed claimed a straight sets win in Turin, Italy, over home favorite Yannick Sinner. Sunday's victory came less than 20 hours after Djokovic dispatched the second-ranked Carlos Alcaraz in the semi-final. After wrapping up his ATP Tour season, Djokovic caught 2023 the best year he's had. For me, obviously, very successful. One of the most successful seasons I ever had in my in my career.、Uh, and I would like to thank、uh, all all of the people that are part of our sport, part of our ecosystem. You know, it's a, it's a great effort to to make this happen. We have the longest season of all sports from January to almost December. We are just blessed to be to be part of this wonderful sport. So thank you very much once again, and hopefully see you tomorrow,、uh, next year. <laughs> Djokovic won three of the four Grand Slams this year, along with the two Masters 1000 titles. The 36-year-old says he wants a clean sweep of the majors next year, as well as the singles gold medal at the Paris Olympics. Steffi Graf is the only player to have achieved the Golden Slam, winning four Grand Slams and a gold medal at the Seoul Olympics in 1988. Turning to cricket, Australia has claimed a record-extending sixth World Cup title, ending India's dominant run in its home tournament. A brilliant century from Travis Head steered Australia to a comfortable six-wicket win in a low-scoring final. Around 93,000 predominantly Indian fans sat mostly in deathly silence as the home team, who had won 10 matches in a row to make the final, slumped to their first loss of the tournament. 
They were outplayed in every department by battle-ready Australia and restricted to 240 all-outs on a slow pitch after losing the toss, with only Virat Kohli and Lokish Rahul making half-centuries. Kohli finished with 765 rounds in 11 matches and was named the player of the tournament. Max Verstappen continued his dominant Formula 1 season with a victory in the inaugural Las Vegas Grand Prix, his 18th win in 21 starts this season. But it was not an easy triumph as Verstappen had to fight from a five-second penalty for forcing Charles Leclerc off the track on the first corner. The Dutch world champion dropped to fifth place but managed to force his way back and overtake Leclerc with 13 laps remaining. Um, I had to pass quite a few cars and of course a safety car again so at that point already was a lot going on in, in the race and then yeah, once we uh, we had the, ma- the matches to the end you know we can go flat out um, I had to pass a few cars to get into the battle with them but then you could clearly see with the DRS around here it was very powerful which I think uh, created quite a lot of good racing here today so it was definitely a lot of fun. Leclerc passed Sergio Perez on the final lap to snatch second place. A third place finish was enough to confirm Perez as championship run-up, the first time that Red Bull has secured a 1-2 in the driver's season standings. Chinese driver Zhou Guanyu had moved to sixth place midway through the race, but eventually dropped to 15th. Chinese skater Ning Zhongyan secured his third medal at the Speed Skating World Cup in Beijing when he won a bronze in the men's 1,000m race on Sunday. Ning earlier won a bronze in the 1,500m and a silver in team sprint. I'm satisfied to maintain this level and earn a medal at this event. I trained abroad this year and picked up some additional knowledge, but I need to adapt and I'm quite confident after earning good results at two World Cup stops. Three-time Olympic champion Kjeld Nose of the Netherlands took the title. Elsewhere, Norway's runner Kivland took the women's 3,000-meter title as China's Han Mei earned a bronze. Italy achieved a 1-2 in finish in the men's mass start, the last event of this tournament. In football, Bruno Fernandes and Ricardo Horta scored in Portugal's 2-0 win over Iceland to make it a clean sweep of 10 wins in the European Championship qualifiers for Roberto Martinez's team. Slovakia finished the group behind Portugal and also advanced. Elsewhere, Romelu Lukaku scored four first-half goals to lead Belgium's 5 new route of Azerbaijan in their final qualifier. Lukaku now leads scoring in the qualifiers with 14 goals, four more than Portugal's Cristiano Ronaldo. Spain's 3-1 win over Georgia was overshadowed by Barcelona midfielder Gavi suffering a serious injury to his right knee. Hungary finished its qualification campaign without a loss after a 3-1 win against Montenegro and topped Group G. Serbia also locked up each spot in the same group at Euro 2024 after drawing 2 all with Bulgaria. In golf, South Korea's Amy Young picked a lucrative time for her first LPGA title on American soil. Young birdied her last two holes for a 6-under 66 to win the CME Group Tour Championship and claimed the $2 million prize matching the largest in women's golf. The victory was her fifth on the LPGA Tour, the previous four coming in Asia. 
And finally, in the NBA, Kevin Durant totaled 39 points to lead the Phoenix Suns to a 140-137 double overtime win over the Utah Jazz. Durant scored back-to-back -back baskets and knocked down three free throws to secure the Suns' victory. In other highlights on Sunday night, LeBron James notched the season-high 37 points and used a last-second free throw to seal Lakers' 105-104 victory over the Houston Rockets. Christopher Porzingis scored 26 points, including the winning dunk with a minute left as the Boston Celtics held off the Memphis Grizzlies 102-100. Thank you very much. That was Yang Guang with sports. Coming up in culture and entertainment, the new movie in the Hunger Games franchise has topped the North American box office. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men Days of Future Past. You are listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi everyone, I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to the Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. At 54 minutes past the hour, turning to culture and entertainment, The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, topped the North American box office in its first weekend in theaters. What are The Hunger Games for? And it's essential to accept what human beings are. However, the franchise prequels 44 million U.S. dollar ticket sale mark uh, marks a low for uh, films carrying the Hunger Games in the title. Previous four Jennifer Lawrence films all broke 100 million in their first weekends. It was a busy weekend at the multiplex, but few of the releases were hits. And Trolls Band Together, the third in the animated series, opened in second place with an estimated 30.6 million dollars in its North American debut. The Marvel's box office further plummeted to just over 10 million dollars in its second week. It's a 78% drop is a historic low for Marvel and for modern superhero pictures. New York City's Carnegie Hall has uh, been the dream stage for the leading lights and performing arts since the doors swung open in 1891. When Douglas Beck joined the staff of Carnegie Hall's uh, Whale Music uh, Institute in 2011, he oversaw the hall's wide range of intensive workshops and masterclasses offered to young professional musicians. During his trip to Beijing, Lin Lin caught up with him as he reflected on the importance of exposing young artists to different cultures. Well, Carnegie Hall's initiative to train the next generation of performing artists has marked its 10th anniversary. So can you share with us some examples of how this program in particular promotes cultural exchanges? Absolutely. Uh, when we created the National Youth Orchestra in 2013, one of the major goals, and I think one of the things that distinguishes it a bit from a lot of the other NYOs around the world, is that we put international touring at the very center of uh, what we wanted to accomplish. And uh, that first year we went to Russia with the great Russian conductor Valery Gergiev, and then we continued on and finished at the BBC Proms. But when we decided to do our, our second international tour, um, we really wanted to prioritize the China relationship, and so that was our, our next destination in 2015. We did seven concerts here in China. Um, it was a wonderful experience. We had a number of occasions that we met local musicians, uh, including in Guangzhou and in Hong Kong. And for our students, the chance to, most of them, make their first visit to China. Since then, we've also started um, a jazz program called NYO Jazz, which came to China for its, uh, its first tour in, in 2019. 
And it's the same concept as the orchestra, but in, in particular, what's nice about that is we're bringing American music. Jazz is really America's special musical art form. Why do you think this particular international component is important to uh, young musicians? I think in, I mean, number one, I think why it's important and, and why it makes sense to do it is, is the old saying about music as a universal language and the fact that, um, you know, particularly in, in many parts of Asia, um, there are many young people studying music, studying Western classical music in particular, studying the violin, studying the piano, and um, that gives one an immediate point of connection where the other sort of cultural and language barriers may make it a little harder to interact if you have that shared love of music. It makes it quite easy person to person, people to people to, to form a relationship. And I think that's especially true with young people who are naturally open to each other. I, I heard from many of our students after we came to Guangzhou and it was really only an hour they spent meeting some of their peers at a rehearsal. They immediately became friends. They immediately stayed on touch through social media. Well, that was Lin Lin speaking with Douglas Beck, director of the Artist Training Program at Carnegie Hall. We're at uh, 58 past the hour, checking the forecast before we go for the day. And Beijing's getting uh, a temperature of plus one overnight. It'll be cloudy and 13 on Tuesday. Chongqing's 11 this evening, then a slight rainfall with a high of 19. Last is minus one overnight, followed by sunny skies and 13. Hong Kong's 20, then sunny with a high of 26. Elsewhere, Tokyo's five overnight. It'll be cloudy with a high of 17 on Tuesday. Islamabad's down to 11, then sunny and 25 tomorrow. Bangkok's 22 tonight. Tomorrow has overcast skies and 32. In Africa, Nairobi's getting moderate rainfall and 27 degrees Celsius. And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, the president of Uruguay has landed in Beijing for a state visit. And China's foreign minister has met a delegation of Arab and Muslim foreign ministers to discuss the situation in Palestine. On behalf of the staff, this is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together.